Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. Last week, we read installment one, so if you haven't heard that one yet, I recommend that you go back and listen to that first episode before you listen to this next part of the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insight on aspects of the novel, and we also are sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this second installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 5 Oh yes, I attended the inquiry, he would say, and to this day I haven't left off wondering why I went. I am willing to believe each of us has a guardian angel, if you fellows will concede to me that each of us has a familiar devil as well. I want you to own up, because I don't like to feel exceptional in any way, and I know I have him, the devil, I mean. I haven't seen him, of course, but I go upon circumstantial evidence. He is there right enough, and, being malicious, he lets me in for that kind of thing. What kind of thing, you ask? Why, the inquiry thing, the yellow dog thing. You wouldn't think a mangy native tyke would be allowed to trip up people in the veranda of a magistrate's court, would you? The kind of thing that by devious, unexpected, truly diabolical ways causes me to run up against men with soft spots, with hard spots, with hidden plague spots by Jove, and loosens their tongues at the sight of me for their infernal confidences. As though, forsooth, I had no confidences to make to myself. As though, God help me, I didn't have enough confidential information about myself to harrow my own soul till the end of my appointed time. And what I have done to be thus favored, I want to know. I declare I am as full of my own concerns as the next man, and I have as much memory as the average pilgrim in this valley. So you see, I am not particularly fit to be a receptacle of confessions. Then why? Can't tell. Unless it be to make time pass away after dinner. Charlie, my dear chap, your dinner was extremely good, and in consequence these men here look upon a quiet rubber as a tumultuous occupation. They wallow in your good chairs and think to themselves, Hang exertion, let that Marlowe talk. Talk? So be it. And it's easy enough to talk of Master Jim after a good spread, two hundred feet above the sea level, with a box of decent cigars handy, on a blessed evening of freshness and starlight that would make the best of us forget we are only on sufferance here, and got to pick our way in cross lights, watching every precious minute and every irremediable step, trusting we shall manage yet to go out decently in the end, but not so sure of it after all, and with dashed little help to expect from those we touch elbows with right and left. Of course, there are men here and there to whom the whole of life is like an after-dinner hour with a cigar, easy, pleasant, empty, perhaps enlivened by some fable of strife to be forgotten before the end is told, before the end is told, even if there happens to be any end to it. My eyes met his for the first time at that inquiry. You must know that everybody connected in any way with the sea was there, because the affair had been notorious for days, ever since that mysterious cable message came from Aden to start us all cackling. 
I say mysterious because it was so in a sense, though it contained a naked fact, about as naked and ugly as a fact can well be. The whole waterside talked of nothing else. First thing in the morning, as I was dressing in my stateroom, I would hear through the bulkhead my Parsi Dubash jabbering about the Patna with the steward, while he drank a cup of tea by favor in the pantry. No sooner on shore I would meet some acquaintance, and the first remark would be, Did you ever hear of anything to beat this? And according to his kind, the man would smile cynically, or look sad, or let out a swear or two. Complete strangers would accost each other familiarly, just for the sake of easing their minds on the subject. Every confounded loafer in the town came in for a harvest of drinks over this affair. You heard of it in the harbor office, at every shipbroker's, at your agents, from whites, from natives, from half-castes, from the very boatmen, squatting half-naked on the stone steps as you went up, by Jove. There was some indignation, not a few jokes, and no end of discussions as to what had become of them, you know. This went on for a couple of weeks or more, and the opinion that whatever was mysterious in this affair would turn out to be tragic as well began to prevail, when one fine morning, as I was standing in the shade by the steps of the harbor office, I perceived four men walking towards me along the quay. I wondered for a while where that queer lot had sprung from, and suddenly, I may say, I shouted to myself, Here they are! There they were, sure enough, three of them as large as life, and one much larger of girth than any living man has a right to be, just landed with a good breakfast inside of them from an outward-bound Dale-line steamer that had come in about an hour after sunrise. There could be no mistake. I spotted the jolly skipper of the Patna at first glance, the fattest man in the whole blessed tropical belt clear round that good old earth of ours. Moreover, nine months or so before, I had come across him in Samarang. His steamer was loaded in the roads, and he was abusing the tyrannical institutions of the German Empire and soaking himself in beer all day long, and day after day in De Jong's back shop, till De Jong, who charged a gilder for every bottle without as much as the quiver of an eyelid, would beckon me aside, and, with his little leathery face all puckered up, declare confidentially, Business is business, but this man, Captain, you make me very sick. Tfui! I was looking at him from the shade. He was hurrying on a little in advance, and the sunlight beating on him brought out his bulk in a startling way. He made me think of a trained baby elephant walking on hind legs. He was extravagantly gorgeous, too, got up in a soiled sleeping suit, bright green and deep orange vertical stripes, with a pair of ragged straw slippers on his bare feet, and somebody's cast-off pith hat, very dirty and two sizes too small for him, tied up with a manila rope yarn on the top of his big head. You understand a man like that hasn't the ghost of a chance when it comes to borrowing clothes. Very well. On he came in hot haste, without a look right or left, passed within three feet of me, and in the innocence of his heart went on pelting upstairs into the harbor office to make his deposition, or report, or whatever you like to call it. It appears he addressed himself in the first instance to the principal shipping master. Archie Ruthvel had just come in, and, as his story goes, was about to begin his arduous day by giving a dressing down to his chief clerk. Some of you might have known him, an obliging little Portuguese half-caste with a miserably skinny neck, and always on the hop to get something from the shipmasters in the way of eatables, a piece of salt pork, a bag of biscuits, a few potatoes, or whatnot. One voyage, I recollect, I tipped him a live sheep out of the remnant of my sea stock, not that I wanted him to do anything for me, he couldn't, you know, but because his childlike belief in the sacred right to perquisites quite touched my heart. 
It was so strong as to be almost beautiful. The race, the two races, rather, and the climate. However, never mind. I know where I have a friend for life. Well, Ruthville says he was giving him a severe lecture, on official morality, I suppose, when he heard a kind of subdued commotion at his back, and turning his head he saw, in his own words, something round and enormous, resembling a 1,600-weight sugar hogshead wrapped in striped flannelette upended in the middle of the large floor space in the office. He declares he was so taken aback that for quite an appreciable time he did not realize the thing was alive, and sat still wondering for what purpose and by what means that object had been transported in front of his desk. The archway from the anteroom was crowded with punka pullers, sweepers, police peons, the coxswain and crew of the harbor steam launch, all craning their necks and almost climbing on each other's backs. Quite a riot. By the time the fellow had managed to tug and jerk his hat clear of his head and advanced with slight bows at Ruthville, who told me the sight was so discomposing that for some time he listened, quite unable to make out what the apparition wanted. It spoke in a voice harsh and lugubrious but intrepid, and little by little it dawned upon Archie that this was a development of the Patna case. He says that as soon as he understood who it was before him, he felt quite unwell. Archie is so sympathetic and easily upset, but pulled himself together and shouted, Stop! I can't listen to you. You must go to the master attendant. I can't possibly listen to you. Captain Elliot is the man you want to see. This way, this way. He jumped up, ran around that long counter, pulled, shoved. The other let him, surprised but obedient at first, and only at the door of the private office some sort of animal instinct made him hang back and snort like a frightened bullock. Look here. What's up? Let go. Look here. Archie flung open the door without knocking. The master of the Patna, sir, he shouts. Go in, captain. He saw the old man lift his head from some writing so sharp that his nose nippers fell off, banged the door to, and fled to his desk, where he had some papers waiting for his signature. But he says the row that burst out in there was so awful he couldn't collect his senses sufficiently to remember the spelling of his own name. Archie's the most sensitive shipping master in the two hemispheres. He declares he felt as though he had thrown a man to a hungry lion. No doubt the noise was great. I heard it down below, and I have every reason to believe it was heard clear across the esplanade as far as the bandstand. Old Father Elliot had a great stock of words and could shout, and didn't mind who he shouted at either. He would have shouted at the Viceroy himself. As he used to tell me, I am as high as I can get. My pension is safe. I have a few pounds laid by, and if they don't like my notions of duty, I would just as soon go home as not. I am an old man, and I have always spoken my mind. All I care for now is to see my girls married before I die. He was a little crazy on that point. His three daughters were awfully nice, though they resembled him amazingly. And on the mornings he woke up with a gloomy view of their matrimonial prospects, the office would read it in his eye and tremble, because they said he was sure to have somebody for breakfast. However, that morning he did not eat the renegade, but, if I may be allowed to carry on that metaphor, chewed him up very small, so to speak, and uh, ejected him again. Thus, in the very few moments, I saw his monstrous bulk descend in haste and stand still on the outer steps. He had stopped close to me for the purpose of profound meditation. His large purple cheeks quivered. He was biting his thumb, and after a while noticed me with a sidelong vexed look. The other three chaps that had landed with him made a little group waiting at some distance. There was a sallow-faced man, mean little chap with his arm in a sling, and a long individual in a blue flannel coat as dry as a chip and no stouter than a broomstick, 
with drooping gray mustaches who looked about him with an air of jaunty imbecility. The third was an upstanding, broad-shouldered youth, with his hands in his pockets, turning his back on the other two who appeared to be talking together earnestly. He stared across the empty esplanade. A ramshackle gary, all dust and Venetian blinds, pulled up short opposite the group, and the driver, throwing up his right foot over his knee, gave himself to the critical examination of his toes. The young chap, making no movement, not even stirring his head, just stared into the sunshine. This was my first view of Jim. He looked as unconcerned and unapproachable as only the young can look. There he stood, clean-limbed, clean-faced, firm on his feet, as promising a boy as the sun ever shone on, and looking at him, knowing all he knew and a little more, too, I was as angry as though I had detected him trying to get something out of me by false pretenses. He had no business to look so sound. I thought to myself, well, if this sort can go wrong like that, and I felt as though I could fling down my hat and dance on it from sheer mortification, as I once saw the skipper of an Italian bark do because his duffer of a mate got into a mess with his anchors when making a flying moor in the roadstead full of ships. I asked myself, seeing him there apparently so much at ease, is he silly? Is he callous? He seemed ready to start whistling a tune. And note, I did not care a rap about the behavior of the other two. Their person somehow fitted the tale that was public property, and was going to be the subject of an official inquiry. That old mad rogue upstairs called me a hound, said the captain of the Patna. I can't tell whether he recognized me, I rather think he did, but at any rate our glances met. He glared. I smiled. Hound was the very mildest epithet that had reached me through the open window. Did he? I said, from some strange inability to hold my tongue. He nodded, bit his thumb again, swore under his breath, then lifting his head and looking at me with a sullen and passionate impudence. Bah! The Pacific is big, my friend. You damned Englishmen can do your worst. I know where there's plenty room for a man like me. I am well acquainted in Apia and Honolulu and... He paused reflectively, while without effort I could depict to myself the sort of people he was acquaint with in those places. I won't make a secret of it that I had been acquaint with not a few of that sort myself. There are times when a man must act as though life were equally sweet in any company. I've known such a time, and what's more, I shan't now pretend to pull a long face over my necessity, because a good many of that bad company from want of moral—moral, moral, what shall I say, posture— or from some other equally profound cause were twice as instructive and twenty times more amusing than the usual respectable thief of commerce you fellows ask to sit at your table without any real necessity. From habit, from cowardice, from good nature, from a hundred sneaking and inadequate reasons. You Englishmen are all rogues, went on my patriotic Flensburg or Stettin Australian. I really don't recollect now what decent little port on the shores of the Baltic was defiled by being the nest of that precious bird. What are you to shout, eh? You tell me. You know better than other people, and that old rogue, he make got him fuss with me. His thick carcass tumbled on its legs that were like a pair of pillars. It trembled from head to foot. That's what you English always make. Make a tam fuss for any little thing, because I was not born in your tam country. Take away my certificate. Take it. I don't want the certificate. A man like me don't want your verfluchte certificate. I spit on it. He spat. I vill an American citizen begum, he cried, fretting and fuming and shuffling his feet as if to free his ankles from some invisible and mysterious grasp that would not let him get away from that spot. He made himself so warm that the top of his bullet had positively smoked. 
Nothing mysterious prevented me from going away. Curiosity is the most obvious of sentiments, and it held me there to see the effect of full information upon that young fellow who, hands in his pockets and turning his back upon the sidewalk, gazed across the grass plots of the esplanade at the yellow portico of the Malabar Hotel with the air of a man about to go for a walk as soon as his friend is ready. That's how he looked, and it was odious. I waited to see him overwhelmed, confounded, pierced through and through, squirming like an impaled beetle. And I was half afraid to see it, too, if you understand what I mean. Nothing more awful than to watch a man who has been found out, not in a crime, but in more than criminal weakness. The commonest sort of fortitude prevents us from becoming criminals in a legal sense. It is from weakness unknown, but perhaps suspected, as in some parts of the world you suspect a deadly snake in every bush. From weakness that may lie hidden, watched or unwatched, prayed against or manfully scorned, repressed or maybe ignored more than half a lifetime, not one of us is safe. We are snared into doing things for which we get called names, and things for which we get hanged, and yet the spirit may well survive, survive the condemnation, survive the halter by Jove, and there are things, they look small enough sometimes, too, by which some of us are totally and completely undone. I watched the youngster there. I liked his appearance. I knew his appearance. He came from the right place. He was one of us. He stood there for all the parentage of his kind, for men and women by no means clever or amusing, but whose very existence is based upon honest faith and upon the instinct of courage. I don't mean military courage or civil courage or any special kind of courage. I mean just that inborn ability to look temptations straight in the face, a readiness unintellectual enough, goodness knows, but without pose, a power of resistance, don't you see, ungracious if you like, but priceless, an unthinking and blessed stiffness before the outward and inward terrors, before the might of nature and the seductive corruption of men, backed by a faith invulnerable to the strength of facts, to the contagion of example, to the solicitation of ideas. Hang ideas. They're tramps, vagabonds, knocking at the back door of your mind, each taking a little of your substance, each carrying away some crumb of the belief in a few simple notions you must cling to if you want to live decently and would like to die easy. This has nothing to do with Jim directly, only that he was outwardly so typical of that good, stupid kind we like to feel marching right and left of us in life, of the kind that is not disturbed by the vagaries of intelligence and the perversions of, of nerves, let us say. He was the kind of fellow you would, on the strength of his looks, leave in charge of the deck, figuratively and professionally speaking. I say I would, and I ought to know. Haven't I turned out youngsters enough in my time, for the service of the red rag to the craft of the sea, to the craft whose whole secret could be expressed in one short sentence, and yet must be driven afresh every day into young heads till it becomes the component part of every waking thought, till it is present in every dream of their young sleep. The sea has been good to me, but when I remember all these boys that passed through my hands, some grown up now and some drowned by this time, but all good stuff for the sea, I don't think I have done badly by it either. Were I to go home tomorrow, I bet that before two days passed over my head some sunburnt young chief mate would overtake me at some dock gateway or other, and a fresh deep voice speaking above my hat would ask, Don't you remember me, sir? Why, little so-and-so, such-and-such ship. It was my first voyage. And I would remember a bewildered little shaver, no higher than the back of this chair, with a mother and perhaps a big sister on the quay, very quiet but too upset to wave their handkerchiefs at the ship that glides out gently between the pier heads, 
or perhaps some decent middle-aged father who would come early with his boy to see him off and stays all morning because he is interested in the windlass apparently and stays too long and has got to scramble ashore at last with no time at all to say goodbye. The mud pilot on the poop sings out to me in a drawl, Hold her with the check line for a moment, Mr. Mate. There's a gentleman wants to get ashore. Up with you, sir. Nearly got carried off to Takawano, didn't you? Now's your time. Easy does it. All right. Slack away again forward there. The tug, smoking like the pit of perdition, get hold and churn the old river into fury. The gentleman ashore is dusting his knees. The benevolent steward has shied his umbrella after him. All very proper. He has offered his bit of sacrifice to the sea, and now he may go home pretending he thinks nothing of it, and the little willing victim shall be very seasick before next morning. By and by, when he has learned all the little mysteries and the one great secret of the craft, he shall be fit to live or die as the sea may decree, and the man who had taken a hand in this fool game, in which the sea wins every toss, will be pleased to have his back slapped by a heavy young hand, and to hear a cheery sea-puppy voice, do you remember me, sir, the little so-and-so? I tell you this is good. It tells you that once in your life, at least, you had gone the right way to work. I have been thus slapped, and I have winced, for the slap was heavy, and I have glowed all day long and gone to bed feeling less lonely in the world by virtue of that hearty thump. Don't I remember the little so-and-sos? I tell you I ought to know the right kind of looks. I would have trusted the deck to that youngster on the strength of a single glance, and gone to sleep with both eyes, and, by Jove, it wouldn't have been safe. There are depths of horror in that thought. He looked as genuine as a new sovereign, but there was some infernal alloy in his metal. How much? The least thing, the least drop of something rare and accursed, the least drop, but he made you, standing there with his don't-care hang air, he made you wonder whether perchance he were nothing more rare than brass. I couldn't believe it. I tell you I wanted to see him squirm for the honor of the craft. The other two no-account chaps spotted their captain and began to move slowly towards us. They chatted together as they strolled, and I did not care any more than if they had been visible to the naked eye. They grinned at each other, might have been exchanging jokes for all I know. I saw that with one of them it was a case of a broken arm, and as to the long individual with gray mustaches, he was the chief engineer, and in various ways of pretty notorious personality. They were nobodies. They approached. The skipper gazed in an inanimate way between his feet. He seemed to be swollen to an unnatural size by some awful disease, by the mysterious action of an unknown poison. He lifted his head, saw the two before him waiting, opened his mouth with an extraordinary sneering contortion of his puffed face, to speak to them, I suppose, and then a thought seemed to strike him. His thick, purplish lips came together without a sound, he went off in a resolute waddle to the gary and began to jerk at the door handle with such a blind brutality of impatience that I expected to see the whole concern overturned on its side, pony and all. The driver, shaken out of his meditation over the sole of his foot, displayed at once all the signs of intense terror, and held with both hands, looking round from his box at this vast carcass forcing its way into his conveyance. The little machine shook and rocked tumultuously, and the crimson nape of that lowered neck, the size of those straining thighs, the immense heaving of that dingy, striped green and orange back, the whole burrowing effect of that gaudy and sordid mass troubled one's sense of probability with a droll and fearsome effect, like one of those grotesque and distinct visions that scare and fascinate one in a fever. He disappeared. 
I half expected the roof to split in two, the little box on wheels to burst open in the manner of a ripe cotton pod, but it only sank with a click of flattened springs, and suddenly one Venetian blind rattled down. His shoulders reappeared, jammed in the small opening, his head hung out, distended and tossing like a captive balloon, perspiring, furious, spluttering. He reached for the gary wallow with vicious flourishes of a fist as dumpy and red as a lump of raw meat. He roared at him to be off, to go on. Where? Into the Pacific, perhaps. The driver lashed. The pony snorted, reared once, and darted off at a gallop. Where? To Apia? To Honolulu? He had six thousand miles of tropical belt to disport himself in, and I did not hear the precise address. A snorting pony snatched him into Yugkite in the twinkling of an eye, and I never saw him again. And, what's more, I don't know of anybody that ever had a glimpse of him after he departed, from my knowledge, sitting inside a ramshackle little gary that fled round the corner in a white smother of dust. He departed, disappeared, vanished, absconded, and absurdly enough it looked as though he had taken that gary with him, for never again did I come across a sorrel pony with a slit ear and a lackadaisical Tamil driver afflicted by a sore foot. The Pacific is indeed big. But whether he found a place for a display of his talents in it or not, the fact remains he had flown into space like a witch on a broomstick. The little chap with his arm in a sling started to run after the carriage, bleeding, Captain! I say, Captain! I say! But after a few steps, he stopped short, hung his head, and walked back slowly. At the sharp rattle of the wheels, the young fellow spun round where he stood. He made no other movement, no gesture, no sign and remained facing in the new direction after the Gary had swung out of sight. All this happened in much less time than it takes to tell, since I am trying to interpret for you into slow speech the instantaneous effect of visual impressions. Next moment, the half-caste clerk, sent by Archie to look a little after the poor castaways of the Patna, came upon the scene. He ran out eager and bareheaded, looking right and left, and very full of his mission. It was doomed to be a failure as far as the principal person was concerned, but he approached the others with a fussy importance, and, almost immediately, found himself involved in a violent altercation with the chap that carried his arm in a sling, and who turned out to be extremely anxious for a row. He wasn't going to be ordered about, not he, begosh. He wouldn't be terrified with a pack of lies by a cocky half-breed little quill driver. He was not going to be bullied by no object of that sort if the story were true, ever so. He bawled his wish, his desire, his determination to go to bed. If you weren't a godforsaken Portuguese, I heard him yell, you would know that the hospital is the right place for me. He pushed the fist out of his sound arm under the other's nose. A crowd began to collect. The half-caste, flustered, but doing his best to appear dignified, tried to explain his intentions. I went away without waiting to see the end. We'll return to this installment of Lord Jim soon, but first, we have our weekly article recommendation brought to us by Lauren Gargani, director of Nutting Memorial Library. You can click the link in the show notes to be taken straight to the article from today. So now, I introduce Lauren Gargani. She studied at Ramapo College of New Jersey, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts in Literature, and then at Ohio University, where she pursued a Master of Arts in English. Her focus in her graduate studies was literary history in the 19th century, and she wrote her master's essay on language and sympathy in Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for coming back. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be back. So what article do you have for us today? 
Okay, so last week I talked a little bit about um, a chapter that dealt with Conrad's experiences taking some of the merchant mariner examinations. And this is an article following on to that that um, gives a little bit more detail and some different context uh, about those exams. But I think it's a really um, another interesting piece that gives a lot of insight into an angle that some of our listeners might be specifically interested in. So this is um, by Jeffrey Myers at the University of Colorado, and it's called Conrad's Examinations for the British Merchant Service, and it's from 1991. Great. So were there some uh, interesting conclusions that he had or anecdotes about his experience taking those tests? So yes, and you know, part of what's helpful is that he gives us some information on where in his own writing, um, both fictional and autobiographical, Conrad talked about his examination experiences. And so he took three separate exams and he retook two of them. He took his second mate's examination in May of 1880. And then he um, took his chief mate's exam in November of 1884. And then finally, he took his master's exam in October of 1886. And um, again, two of those were, you know, he needed to retake. And there's evidence of him taking some what would be called crammers courses at the time. So um, going and getting some training. Um, and one of the things that, um, that Myers points out is that, you know, Conrad is at a disadvantage slightly in that he's taking these exams in English and um, there are oral portions for these exams that are extremely intimidating and would be complicated um, if you were you know relatively new to the English language um, and you know learning that not so long before you're taking these tests. Yeah I can imagine that a pretty high pressure exam with a lot of material in it would be hard to take when you know, how long had he been speaking English at that point? Um, I think he mentions that, you know, just a couple of years before um, taking his first one. So, you know, these are stressful exams anyway. Um, and one of the things that I like is that um, he cites, uh, Myers cites specific examples of how Conrad describes the various examiners and, you know, kind of the sense he gets of their personalities and then, um, you know, later reflects them, maybe not, um, completely accurately in fiction maybe he you know takes some license but but how some of those descriptions come through and you know the idea of the very different experience of going before somebody who's you know kind of kind in their mannerisms um you know compared to someone who comes in and is extremely stern and just sort of putting you um you know not putting you at ease right off the bat um that you know he talks about the effect that that has and and the whole experience and um, how, you know, there's an anecdote about him um, tipping the doorkeeper after the exam and to ask him, you know, how long was I in there? Because he doesn't even have a, have a sense of what how much time has passed. Um, and, you know, having a three hour exam where you are, you know, just exhausted by the end of it. Um, but yeah, I want to imagine that would be a, a pretty intense experience where he's just kind of all in mentally and loses yeah. track of everything else. Absolutely. But then, you know, the description, um, you know, Meyer says only after he stepped outside the building did he experience euphoric relief and begin to walk on air. So, you know, I feel like we've seen that in some of our students after they pass their Coast Guard exams. And that's a, you know, a feeling that's that's well over 100 years old. That's really cool to hear about. 
Um, so were his exams written or were they oral exams with these examiners? It was a combination. Um, so there were a lot of calculations and um, the chapter that we looked at last week, you know, talked about like being given a little bit of a hint at some point where he turned in his papers and someone, the, the um, someone administering the exam said, you know, you have 14 minutes left and him like looking at all of the at the stack of paper and saying like how can I possibly go over all of these calculations and check them in 14 minutes and then realizing that the actual language minutes was a clue that you know I need to look at this calculation and he realized he had transposed um you know he'd he'd written an e I believe where he should have written a w and gotten east and west wrong I might have reversed that but anyway he made the correction he caught it in time so he might have had a tiny bit of help in that instance um but yeah, he's doing um, oral exams and he's, you know, having to um, describe how he would, you know, act in a certain situation and he's doing written exams with, again, tons of calculations. So um, combination. Wow. Well, that sounds like something that our students especially will appreciate hearing about kind of from the past. I think so. And, you know, he he kind of maintained really strong feelings about the qualifications that mariners needed and he writes later on in life um, again so this is in the early to mid 1880s that he's taking his exams um, and he talks about um, later in 1923 taking a voyage by steamship and you know this is something that as I get older I feel like I can hear coming out of my own mouth but he's just basically talking about like sailors these days they have it so easy um, and you know how how the standards are different and how you know they don't have to learn the kind of um seamanship skills that would have been required back in his time well that's really fascinating so um we'll definitely have the link to that up in our show notes i uh, will have the full citation available there um, and again, is this available through our online resources? Yes, you can find this in a search of JSTOR and it is, it's available in there. Um, anybody who is an MMA user can access it. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. But it so happened that I had a man in the hospital at the time, and going there to see about him the day before the opening of the inquiry, I saw in the white men's ward the little chap tossing on his back with his arm in splints and quite light-headed. To my great surprise, the other one, the long individual with drooping white mustache, had also found his way there. I remembered I had seen him slinking away during the quarrel, in a half-prance, half-shuffle, and trying very hard not to look scared. He was no stranger to the port, it seems, and in his distress was unable to make track straight for Mariani's billiard room and grog shop near the bazaar. That unspeakable vagabond, Mariani, who had known the man and had ministered to his vices in one or two other places, kissed the ground in a manner of speaking before him, and shut him up with a supply of bottles in an upstairs room of his infamous hovel. It appears he was under some hazy apprehension as to his personal safety and wished to be concealed. However, Mariani told me a long time after, when he came on board one day to dun my steward for the price of some cigars, that he would have done more for him without asking any questions, from gratitude for some unholy favor received very many years ago, 
as far as I could make out. He thumped twice his brawny chest, rolled enormous black and white eyes glistening with tears. Antonio never forget, Antonio never forget. What was the precise nature of the immoral obligation I never learned, but be it what it may, he had every facility given him to remain under lock and key, with a chair, a table, a mattress in a corner, and a litter of fallen plaster on the floor, in an irrational state of funk and keeping up his pecker with such tonics as Mariani dispensed. This lasted till the evening of the third day, when, after letting out a few horrible screams, he found himself compelled to seek safety and flight from a legion of centipedes. He burst the door open, made one leap for dear life down the crazy little stairway, landed bodily on Mariani's stomach, picked himself up and bolted like a rabbit into the streets. The police plucked him off a garbage heap in the early morning. At first he had a notion they were carrying him off to be hanged, and fought for liberty like a hero, but when I sat down by his bed he had been very quiet for two days. His lean bronzed head with white moustaches looked fine and calm on the pillow, like the head of a war-worn soldier with a childlike soul, had it not been for a hint of spectral alarm that lurked in the blank glitter of his glance, resembling a nondescript form of a terror crouching silently behind a pane of glass. He was so extremely calm that I began to indulge in the eccentric hope of hearing something explanatory of the famous affair from his point of view. Why I longed to go grubbing into the deplorable details of an occurrence which, after all, concerned me no more than as a member of an obscure body of men held together by a community of inglorious toil and by fidelity to a certain standard of conduct, I can't explain. You may call it an unhealthy curiosity if you like, but I have a distinct notion I wished to find something. Perhaps unconsciously, I hoped I would find that something, some profound and redeeming cause, some merciful explanation, some convincing shadow of an excuse. I see well enough now that I hoped for the impossible, for the laying of what is the most obstinate ghost of a man's creation, of the uneasy doubt uprising like a mist, secret and gnawing like a worm, and more chilling than the certitude of death, the doubt of the sovereign power enthroned in a fixed standard of conduct. It is the hardest thing to stumble against. It is the thing that breeds yelling panics and good little quiet villainies. It's the true shadow of calamity. Did I believe in a miracle? And why did I desire it so ardently? Was it for my own sake that I wished to find some shadow of an excuse for that young fellow whom I had never seen before, but whose appearance alone added a touch of personal concern to the thoughts suggested by the knowledge of his weakness, made it a thing of mystery and terror, like a hint of a destructive fate ready for all whose youth in its day had resembled his youth? I fear that such was the secret motive of my prying. I was, and no mistake, looking for a miracle. The only thing that at this distance of time strikes me as miraculous is the extent of my imbecility. I positively hoped to obtain from that battered and shady invalid some exorcism against the ghost of doubt. I must have been pretty desperate, too, for without loss of time, after a few indifferent and friendly sentences which he answered with languid readiness, just as any decent sick man would do, I produced the word Patna wrapped up in a delicate question as in a wisp of floss silk. I was delicate selfishly. I did not want to startle him. I had no solicitude for him. I was not furious with him and sorry for him. His experience was of no importance. His redemption would have had no point for me. He had grown old in minor iniquities and could no longer inspire aversion or pity. He repeated Patna? Interrogatively, 
seemed to make a short effort of memory, and said, Quite right. I am an old stager out here. I saw her go down. I made ready to vent my indignation at such a stupid lie when he added smoothly, She was full of reptiles. This made me pause. What did he mean? The unsteady phantom of terror behind his glassy eyes seemed to stand still and look into mine wistfully. They turned me out of my bunk in the middle watch to look at her sinking, he pursued in a reflective tone. His voice sounded alarmingly strong all at once. I was sorry for my folly. There was no snowy-winged quaff of a nursing sister to be seen flitting in the perspective of the ward. But away in the middle of a long row of empty iron bedsteads, an accident case from some ship in the road sat up brown and gaunt, with a white bandage set rakishly on the forehead. Suddenly my interesting invalid shot out an arm thin like a tentacle and clawed my shoulder. Only my eyes were good enough to see. I'm famous for my eyesight. That's why they called me, I expect. None of them was quick enough to see her go, but, but they saw that she was gone right enough, and sang out together, like this. A wolfish howl searched the very recesses of my soul. Oh, make em dry up, whined the accident case irritably. You don't believe me, I suppose, one on the other, with an air of ineffable conceit. I tell you there are no such eyes as mine this side of the Persian Gulf. Look under the bed. Of course I stooped instantly. I defy anybody not to have done so. What can you see? he asked. Nothing, I said, feeling awfully ashamed of myself. He scrutinized my face with wild and withering contempt. Just so, he said. But if I were to look, I could see. There's no eyes like mine, I tell you. Again he clawed, pulling at me downwards in his eagerness to relieve himself by a confidential communication. Millions of pink toads. There's no eyes like mine. Millions of pink toads. It's worse than seeing a ship sink. I could look at sinking ships and smoke my pipe all day long. Why don't they give me back my pipe? I would get a smoke while I watched these toads. The ship was full of them. They've got to be watched, you know. He winked facetiously. The perspiration dripped on him off my head. My drill coat clung to my wet back. The afternoon breeze swept impetuously over the row of bedsteads, the stiff folds of curtains stirred perpendicularly, rattling on brass rods, the covers of empty beds blew about noiselessly near the bare floor all along the line, and I shivered to the very marrow. The soft wind of the tropics played in that naked ward as bleak as a winter's gale in an old barn at home. "'Don't you let him start his hollering, mister,' hailed from afar the accident case in a distressed, angry shout that came ringing between the walls like a quavering call down a tunnel. The clawing hand hauled at my shoulder. He leered at me knowingly. The ship was full of them, you know, and we had to clear out on the strict QT, he whispered with extreme rapidity. All pink, all pink, as big as mastiffs, with an eye on the top of the head and claws all round their ugly mouths. Ugh, ugh. Quick jerks as of galvanic shocks disclosed under the flat coverlet the outline of meager and agitated legs. He let go my shoulder and reached after something in the air. His body trembled tensely like a released harp string. And while I looked down, the spectral horror in him broke through his glassy gaze. Instantly, his face of an old soldier, with its noble and calm outlines, became decomposed before my eyes by the corruption of stealthy cunning, of an abominable caution and of desperate fear. He restrained a cry. Shh! 
"'What are they doing now down there?' he asked, pointing to the floor with fantastic precautions of voice and gesture, whose meaning, borne upon my mind in a lurid flash, made me very sick of my cleverness. "'They're all asleep,' I answered, watching him narrowly. That was it. That's what he wanted to hear. These were the exact words that could calm him. He drew a long breath. "'Shh! Quiet! Steady! I'm an old stager out here. I know them brutes. Bash in the head of the first that stirs. There's too many of them, and she won't swim more than ten minutes.' He panted again. "'Hurry up!' he yelled suddenly, and went on in a steady scream. "'They're all awake! Millions of them! They are trampling on me! Wait! Oh, wait! I'll smash them in heaps like flies! Wait for me! Help! Help!' An interminable and sustained howl completed my discomfiture. I saw in the distance the accident case raised deplorably both his hands to his bandaged head. A dresser, aproned to the chin, showed himself in the vista of the ward, as if seen in the small end of a telescope. I confessed myself fairly rooted, and without more ado, stepping out through one of the long windows, escaped into the outside gallery. The howl pursued me like a vengeance. I turned into a deserted landing, and suddenly all became very still and quiet around me and I descended the bare and shiny staircase in a silence that enabled me to compose my distracted thoughts. Down below I met one of the resident surgeons who was crossing the courtyard and stopped me. "'Been to see your man, Captain? I think we may let him go tomorrow. These fools have no notion of taking care of themselves, though. I say, we've got the chief engineer of that pilgrim ship here. A curious case, DTs of the worst kind. He had been drinking hard in that Greek's or Italian's grog shop for three days.' What can you expect? Four bottles of that kind of brandy a day, I am told. Wonderful, if true. Sheeted with boiler iron inside, I should think. The head, ah, the head, of course, gone, but the curious part is there's some sort of method in his raving. I am trying to find out. Most unusual. That thread of logic is such a delirium. Traditionally, he ought to see snakes, but he doesn't. Good old traditions at a discount nowadays. Eh, his uh, visions are Petrachian. <laughs> no, seriously, I never remember being so interested in a case of Jim Jams before. He ought to be dead, don't you know, after such a festive experiment. Oh, he is a tough object. Four and twenty years of the tropics, too. You ought really to take a peep at him. Noble-looking old boozer. Most extraordinary man I ever met. Medically, of course. Won't you? I have been all along exhibiting the usual polite signs of interest, but now assuming an air of regret, I murmured a want of time and shook hands in a hurry. I say, he cried after me, he can't attend that inquiry. Is his evidence material, you think? Not in the least, I called back from the gateway. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text, as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.